2: better part of me, yeah, 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 I hang my head from sorrow, so much, state of humanity, yes, wearing on my shoulders, yeah. gotta find the strength in me. I'm
3: your host, Stella, and this is Backworld Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 141 for June MMXVII. Backworld Oracle is brought to you by Coffee and Comics.
2: When you talk about comics, does it sound something like this?
3: Look, you can't put the Superman number 77s with the 200s.
2: They haven't even discovered Red Kryptonite yet. And you, uh, you can't put the number 98s with the 300s. Laurie Lamaris hasn't even been introduced. Or maybe it sounds a little more like this. You think Mighty Mouse could beat up Superman? What are you, cracked? Why not? I saw the other day he was carrying five elephants in one hand. Boy, you don't know nothing. Mighty Mouse is a cartoon. Superman is a real guy. No way a cartoon could beat up a real guy. Yeah, maybe you're right. It would be a good fight, though. Hello, I am the constantly caffeinated Clinton Robinson, and my comics discussions can go to both extremes, but generally fall somewhere in between. On the Coffee and Comics Podcast, I will review comic stories and other comics-related topics that can be enjoyed over a cup of coffee. So pour the coffee, or other beverage of choice, and join me on the Coffee and Comics Podcast, available on iTunes and coffeeandcomicspodcast.blogspot.com.
3: Background to Oracle is also brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. MileHigh Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, MileHigh Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out MileHighComics.com. Batgirl to Oracle is a proud member of the Batman Universe family of podcasts. Hashtag TBU family. Support TBU and subscribe to the show on Patreon by going to the Batmanuniverse.net. My next guest is an associate professor in the Department of Politics, Economics, and Law at the State University of New York, College at Old Westbury, and author of the Eisner-nominated book Superwomen, Gender Power, and Representation, which examines the history, changing representation, and fan reception of characters like Wonder Woman, Barbara Gordon... Padme, Leia, and Jaina from Star Wars, the ladies of the X Men, Buffy, and Captain and Miss Marvel. So please give a warm welcome to Carolyn Coca. Hello. Well, I do have to say that I had to look back because we have spoken previously to this, Mm -hmm. but I couldn't remember when our history actually began, and actually you first contacted me in 2014, right after I put out the Killing Joke episode, and you wrote in to discuss your thoughts on that, and you also had mentioned you were writing an academic paper on Barbara Gordon, feminist theory, and disability theory, so you've uh, sort of been... (laughs) you know along for the ride i'd say and and i was almost at the beginning i guess because parts of that
1: paper found its way into this book right right the the paper itself that i was writing at the time is in an online journal called image text mm-hmm. but yeah i think i took the best parts of it and and put it in my book super women
3: yeah well i have to say i absolutely loved your book Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for sending me a copy. Thank you for putting me in your bibliography. That's (laughs) right. I found my name had appeared there. But this is something that I've been championing for a long time. And last year I did a really long episode called Minority Report. And Mm -hmm. diversity as a whole is something that I continually come back to. So this was just great. And I loved how you did it. So I can't wait to talk to you more about it. Oh, great. Well, first, I wanted to actually talk to you about your comics origin story. You get into it a little bit in the book, but for listeners who have yet to read, and hopefully after listening to this, they go and buy your book, how did you first get into comics?
1: I don't remember not being into superheroes in particular, because I was a little kid in the 70s, and I would play Super Friends and Star Wars with these boys who lived in my neighborhood. But in terms of specific comics, I only own one, well, two comic issues from back then, which is Oversized Star Wars, number one and two, (laughs) that the the two of them together told the story of the first movie. I also had a Bionic Woman lunchbox in elementary school, and I I had a Supergirl bathing suit. So, you know, those were my people back then. And then as I was a teenager in the late 80s, I got much more interested in Batman and Batgirl in my twenties I think I added X Men and Buffy and then since then I'll just read I'll just read anything. So I think it's just it, it was always there and it's just grown over time. You mentioned
3: also in your intro about your daughter and so is her origin story sort of following your own? Have you had some influence? Are you creating a bit of a minion?
1: I think I think parents like to believe that they have influence on their kids. <laughs> I, think, I think they do to some extent. But I think it's also true that they're their own people. But certainly, yeah, my daughter my daughter can't watch a TV show or read a book without automatically counting up how many female characters there are mm, okay. <laughs> or, or looking at whether they're being kind of portrayed in a stereotypical way or if they're diverse at all. So I, I am pleased that she does approach media that way. That's great. So what gave you the idea for this book? It's pretty much thinking about um, – What I experienced as a kid playing with those boys and putting that together with what I teach, which is politics and civil rights and gender studies, Mm -hmm. because when I played with my friends, I was always Wonder Woman and they got to choose from Superman and Batman and Robin and Aquaman and stuff. And I was always Princess Leia, but they got to choose between Luke and Han and Chewie and Obi-Wan and Vader. And so back then and still now, any comic, any TV show, any movie, there's often no female character or maybe only one and when and they're also often just kind of one note. So around five years ago, I guess, I decided to take my political science and gender studies training and sort of apply it to this question of why are there so few female superheroes and why are they usually poorly written? And has it changed over time at all? And the answer is... Well, the answer is complicated, but it's basically like you have to kind of take into account what's the political context of the time and how were comics produced and distributed then and are you looking at a comic or um, a TV show or a movie and what's the interplay of editors and writers and artists and parent companies and different audience groups – when you put that all together in One Big Stew, you kind of get why a female character looks the way she does at any given time. And, yeah, it's gotten better over time, but not much better.
3: How many years have you been working on this? In a sense, I, I guess it's started out when you were younger because it's almost been in the back of your mind, but... And I just want listeners to know that it's not like you were just sitting down and watching TV episodes of Wonder Woman (laughs) or reading comics because, you know, all of the the references that you're making, you're looking at letter pages, Mm -hmm. you're researching interviews, taking, you know, past and present. You're also looking at message boards that are potentially defunct now. So Mm -hmm. you are you did a, a wide range of research. So how long did it take to
1: compile all of this? It took a few years altogether, but I started in discrete parts. Like, I started writing an article about Wonder Woman, and then that kind of turned into a second article comparing Wonder Woman and Buffy. And then from Buffy, I kind of decided to do this third thing about Barbara Gordon. Mm-hmm. And then so it just kind of one thing kept leading to another because I thought I was just doing something small, but then it would lead to more questions about other characters. And I saw kind of connections and patterns between the characters. So it took me a couple years to realize that really this should be a book it should be all in one place because of the seeing the repetition the same kinds of themes over and over but yeah i mean probably in the neighborhood of four years the way academic publishing works is the book came out six months ago but that means i really turned it in over a year ago Mm. and so that means the first draft of it really was done several months before that So it's as updated as it can be. And I'm relieved to say that some things I guessed about turned out to be basically true. Like I I made comments about how Wonder Woman would probably look in a movie. And, you know, as of a few days ago, few, I wasn't totally wrong about that. Mm -hmm. You know, but it's, yeah, so it's as up to date as it can be. But that means I started about five years ago and finished about four years ago.
3: Do you have any idea how it's been received so far? I mentioned before that it's nominated now for an Eisner, but have any creators or has anyone contacted you?
1: I get the occasional nice email, which is always cool. And there are some academics who have talked to me about using it in their classes. Oh, okay. um, and I see sales figures, so somebody must be reading it. <laughs> uh, but the Eisner nomination was, I mean, I, I couldn't be more... Excited and honored by that. That's just so cool. I didn't see that coming.
3: Yeah, well, congratulations to you.
1: Thanks.
3: Well, to get into the book a little bit more now. In the intro, you gave reasons for why you picked the characters that you did, and there were four reasons. There are transmedia properties, their comics have been published by different companies. They represent a variety of heroisms, and their supporting casts also are well-rounded to a certain extent. Were there other characters that you considered exploring but just they may not have fallen into those four categories or you felt like perhaps you didn't have as much meat with them.
1: Yeah, that was really the issue. And that's why I designed it that way. I wanted to be able to compare them across, not only across like decades of time, but also across media. Like what is different if a character is in comics or novels or on TV or on film? The problem with designing it that way, like you said, is it means that there are interesting characters that at the moment that I started, there was not enough there for me to do that. In other words, like maybe they weren't um, they hadn't been written for a really long time, so I could talk about how they changed over time, or like they were only in comics, so I couldn't say this is how they're different on TV or something like that. When I was almost done with the book, there was still no Jessica Jones or Misty Knight or Colleen Wing or Supergirl on TV. Mm Mm-hmm. And so at the point at which I was, when those things came on TV, I was kind of rewriting what I had already done. And and like you were asking, how long did it take to do? It took me like four years So because I was looking at all those different sources. So there was just like – I just didn't have it in me to like add a new chapter about Jessica Jones and read every single comic and every letter column and hunt down every message board and talk to the creators (laughs) and and all that stuff. So Mm -hmm. I do have – regrets that they're not in there but it doesn't mean that I couldn't write something shorter about them so I would like to do that
3: yeah I think I'd like to hear your thoughts on Jessica Jones because that character has some real issues yes (laughs) (laughs) so it'd be interesting to see how how you would talk about her but she is a a pretty strong and well-rounded character but she just has some pretty she's damaged in a in a great way she
1: is but I think it could be I think it could be an interesting comparison, though, to compare Brian Michael Bendis's Jessica Jones and Alias, the comic, mm-hmm,
0: right. to
1: to Gail Simone's new 52 Barbara Gordon, mm-hmm. because both of them are written as dealing with PTSD. Mm-hmm. So even though they have extremely different backgrounds, I think it would be interesting to see what they had in common and what they did not.
3: Mm-hmm. It'd be interesting, especially with the purple man, because I feel Mm -hmm. like Barbara and Jessica would be on two different levels because the purple man just seems to very much manipulate Jessica and Barbara. But at the same time, Barbara is still with that PTSD being manipulated by the Joker. Right. That's sort of always in the. So it's almost, you know, how much do these men have control of their lives, even though they're not with them at the time?
1: Yeah, exactly. And of course, that's different from when you're talking about birds of prey, Barbara, right. who is like hitting Joker in the face with her <laughs> sticks and saying, right, right. you took nothing from me, mm-hmm. you know, but we can talk about that more specifically later. If absolutely, you want. <laughs> absolutely.
3: When you were doing your investigations and your research, was there one group of characters or a specific character that was most shocking to you and what you had come upon in their
1: history? Well, can I ask you that first? Oh,
3: absolutely!
1: (laughs) You you said something about X Men, and and that was going to be that is my answer. There was something about the X Men that really surprised me. But what surprised you?
3: The thing that surprised me is that with the X-Men, I grew up with the 90s TV show, the animated uh, series.
1: Mm-hmm. And so
3: it's interesting how you're watching it and you're engaged, but you don't really realize that that kind of stuff is going on. You know, Jean Grey fainting, which I think yes. you mentioned a lot in there. and sort of the the things that, that are going on with Storm and Rogue. And, you know, reading this, I'm like, oh, my goodness, I was watching this, but I never realized it. And <laughs> even a couple of years ago, I was really reading a lot of X-Men and Kitty Pryde's one of my favorites. So I think you just really pulled out of things that I think were in my subconscious and brought them forward, but I had never really Noticed them before, and perhaps it was because of my age. But it was really shocking to see it all written down, and like, oh my goodness, yes, she's right, she's totally right. So that was the most shocking (laughs) one for me.
1: (laughs) Well, that's good. I'm glad I could help you do that. And and when (laughs) I, no, when I went back and looked at some things I had watched as a kid, I had those similar feelings. Like, oh, I wonder if I noticed that when I was seven, something that seems so obvious to me now. But um, for me, what was so surprising about the X Men is that. I think I like many people, think of them as totally the most diverse superhero team for decades. Mm-hmm. And qualitatively, that's true, but quantitatively it's not. And in other words, in terms of individual stories, that's the quanti- qual- excuse me, that's the qualitative analysis, mm-hmm. right? You're reading stories and you're doing this deep dive on stories. X-Men does have more stories that center people of color and center women and center people with disabilities and center people who are queer. But when you count up characters across decades, that's the quantitative analysis, you find that numerically most X-Men are white and male. And that really surprised me.
3: <laughs> yes. <laughs> even though they have such a, you know, their story is supposed to be like a metaphor, basically, or an allegory to real
1: world situations.
2: Yeah.
1: But when you look at the, just even the original X-Men, it's Jean, but then it's, right. let me think, Scott mm-hmm. and be- and Hank and Bobby, who am I missing? Angel. Yes. So you basically have five white people, and four of them are guys. Mm -hmm. So you're kind of telling a story about discrimination through white people. Right. And I guess somehow I hadn't really thought about that that much before. Because when I think of X-Men, I tend to think of Kitty. Kitty's my favorite character also. Oh, yay. I tend to think of Storm. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I just hadn't realized how many other characters there were that I just was not as focused on. (laughs) There's
3: one issue. Well, I think the 80s is just a really weird time. But the X-Men are captured or kidnapped by arcade and there's just one scene which always stays with me because they had their uniforms on and then all of a sudden they're changed out of their uniforms that arcade probably had to do it and of course you know Storm is wearing something scandalous but Mm -hmm. it's just a little weird to think that arcade changed them into their clothing. (laughs) It was also a little strange and scandalous to hear you talk about how Gina sort of passed around from the different men as sort of a love interest for multiple and even you do touch upon Professor X to a certain extent.
1: yeah I know in those early comics he makes uh, he thinks to himself about how he'd like to be with Jean but he kind of knows it's not appropriate yuck <laughs> yeah even <laughs> just thinking about it is yeah pretty bad Professor but with the um <laughs> but in terms of her triangle with um, Scott and Logan mm-hmm. it really wasn't so much in the comics at all it was it kind of started in the cartoon mm-hmm. and then it really took off in the movies right. And then yeah. it got like reincorporated back into the comics.
3: Yeah, that was another thing with the movies is you kept mentioning about Wolverine taking such a mm-hmm. big role. Whereas in the comics, it would have been Storm for the most part because she was more the second leader. And I can't right. help thinking it's because Wolverine and Hugh Jackman in particular are such fan favorites that perhaps they were just too scared to put Storm in the forefront. I'm not sure. Do you have any thoughts
1: on that? Yeah, I think it's exactly that. Because when I put everything together that I had looked at for the book, and it was a lot of stuff, and not even just the things that I talk about in the book, there's a lot of other stuff that didn't make it in there. I mean, I also read uh, decades of Batman, mm-hmm. and you know, I, and, and Nightwing and Batman Family and lots of other X-Men things that I don't talk about specifically and Wolverine, whatever. What I found overall is that you're going to see more diverse representations and more risks being taken in comics because they're cheaper. They're just cheaper to produce, so they're less risk mm-hmm. for those parent companies, whereas something like a movie, they're so worried about how much money they're spending that they're going to hew much more closely to that, okay, um, what is guaranteed to make us the most money? Well, people seem to like Hugh Jackman, so let's um this role that Storm played in the comics, let's have Wolverine played in the movie. Mm-hmm.
3: I think the biggest disappointment for me was days of future past, quite honestly, because Wolverine was the one sent back and then Kitty Pryde mm-hmm. all of a sudden developed Rachel's powers or something. You know, she Not could send him back. Yeah, I was very confused about that, but that was a bit of
1: a should have had America. Rachel. Rachel's a great character. I know. Man.
3: Well, we could probably continue talking about <laughs> yeah, X-Men for a very long time.
1: I do. I do say quite a bit about Days of Future Past in, uh, in the book. Yes, you um, do.
3: Yep. I do want to talk about the Bechtel test, which okay. you bring up nearly in every chapter that you have. So, for people who don't know what the Bechtel test is, it was a test popularized by Alison Bechtel's comic Dikes to Watch Out For in a 1985 strip called The Rule, and Alison Bechtel. Also wrote Fun Home, which is a book that I talked about on here. So if there's a connection there. So here's the Bechtel test. It has to have whatever we're talking about. It has to have at least two women in it who end up talking to each other about something besides a man. So it has to fall into those three things. So my concern, now I agree with the, I think this is great. I think this is a good measure. But my concern with it is, do you think there is too much of a reliance and focus on it? Um, and that, you know, if something fails the Bechdel test, like, it's it's not good. Everything should pass the Bechdel test.
1: Well, um, for one thing, I try, I mention it, like you said, I mention it a lot, partly mm-hmm. because it's gotten a lot more media coverage, I think, in the past couple years. So I thought it would be something people would be familiar with. And also, it became a way for me to compare what was going on with different characters at different times. But the thing is about the test is that it's not perfect, mm-hmm. because a terrible movie can pass the test. I mean, it doesn't have to be a good movie at all to have two women. And by the way, it can pass even if two women say one sentence to each other. Mm -hmm. They don't even have to be central to the plot, really. And a good movie can fail. So like Logan, speaking of Wolverine, I I finally watched Logan over the weekend. I didn't want to see it in the theater because I really hate gore. So I just thought I'd have my head in my hands the whole time. (laughs) (laughs) So I wanted to watch it at home. Okay, my point is Logan fails. And... Logan is a really good movie. The thing is about the Bechdel test is that I do think it's really important because the bar it sets is so unbelievably low and most movies fail it. And that's really the issue that most movies fail it. When you apply the test, it kind of it kind of forces you to look at the choices that have been made and the ways in which mostly male writers and producers and directors think of women, mostly not present because they're not important, mostly playing supporting roles. Mostly being kind of decorative objects next to men. So so when I'm talking about choices like in the case of Logan, for instance, did you see Logan? I did see Logan. Okay, so like why does the mutant living with Professor X and Logan have to be Caliban? Why couldn't it have been a female mutant? Mm. And why does the villain have to be Donald Pierce? Because he doesn't act like Donald Pierce ever does in the comics. So why couldn't that have been a woman? Mm -hmm. Or in the new Wonder Woman Woman movie – why are there three supporting characters that go to the front with Diana and Steve? These are three male characters never before seen in 75 years of Wonder Woman comics. Why would you make the choice to make up these three new guy characters? Why not use Etta Candy and her friends who have a decades-long history with the Wonder Woman character? You know, not didn't have to be male to go to the front in, in World War I because almost like 100,000 British women volunteered in that war. Why does Dr. Poison get like almost nothing to say and have to answer to a made-up new – male character named General Ludendorff. And it's really about just noticing that every character is a product of choices. And so it's about General Ludendorff and these three guys we don't know because the writers made a choice to make up new characters and make them male instead of centering female characters who have been in the comics since the 1940s. So like two-thirds of the Wonder Woman movie fails the Bechtel test. Mm. But women are more than half the population of Earth. There's no reason they shouldn't be at least half the characters in any piece of fiction, and there's no reason that male should always be the default. We just need to see it and question it. So I think the Bechtel test is useful for that. Okay. It's not useful for the thumbs up or thumbs down thing, mm-hmm. but just to get you to think a little more about any given movie.
3: Is it pretty ingrained in you now that whatever you see or whatever you read, you might be testing it? Yeah, I really can't.
1: It's hard for me to turn off that part of my brain. Okay. <laughs> so uh, that can be a problem sometimes. Mm-hmm. It's true. But, you know, real life is there and you can't really, you shouldn't really turn off your brain walking around in real life either. So it's mm-hmm. it's important to notice these kinds of things.
3: Yeah, Absolutely. Well, in connection to that, when I was reading this book, and especially thinking about the Bechtel test, I was thinking about young adult literature. And I teach mostly eighth graders, and so mm-hmm. occasionally I will read something that they have read, or it just so happens that I'm reading something that they're reading. And so I think a lot of your book you talk about, characters of or characteristics of women and just women in general that aren't necessarily dependent on men. They're more realistic, you know, although in a fantasy medium, Mm -hmm. but there are many YA novels that are presenting women and young women more with a focus on finding a man
0: (laughs) or Mm -hmm. presenting
3: an unrealistic idea of romance and relationships. And I think in particular of a novel I read recently, called The Selection, which is actually a series by Kira Cass. And just to give mm-hmm. a brief um, plot, so not, well, not even a synopsis, but it's basically in this society, a prince invites, I think there are 25 girls or 35, and the idea is that out of these 35, he's going to pick one girl to marry. And mm-hmm. following, you're following following—you're following one of the girls. Her, her name happens to be America. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't really want to win, but she's also focused on this relationship that she had in the past. But in the end, she also has some feelings for the prince here. I only read the first book, and it was because I bribed a student to get a good grade on something. <laughs> but I also think about Twilight because, mm-hmm. you know, Bella was a pretty terrible female character, to be honest. I agree um, with that. <laughs> but then there are other books like Hunger Games, which is I actually really like Hunger Games. And Katniss mm-hmm. is a strong character, but at the same time, she's in the love triangle. Yeah. So all that to say, I just want to give some preamble there. Are these sorts of representations holding forward progress for all female characters back? And as a second question, do you think that YA literature is at times harmful towards informing and the formation of young women?
1: Well, I think that we should we should kind of foreground this by saying love is super important.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> so it seems to me it would make sense for all characters in books to be kind of not only embedded in relationships already, but like be dealing with all different kinds of relationships, parents, siblings, friends, work and romantic partners. Mm-hmm. The thing is that in in terms of not just novels, but real life, many females are taught to think that romance is very important and that they need to be in a couple and that it's a goal to be in a couple, whereas males are not really brought up in the same kind of way. And so our fiction, I, I wouldn't really say that our fiction is going to change anybody's mind about that, but I think it probably reinforces what people are hearing in real life. I think fiction circulates ideas just like people talking in real life circulates ideas. So we we really need to kind of stop replicating that inequality. You know, stop. it, it, it would be great if we could just say, okay, love is something people need and want. So some female characters are going to be very focused on it, and some male characters are going to be very focused on it. The problem is when you have all female characters focused on it and no male characters ever. Mm-hmm. And I think that's almost what we tend to see. And in the kind of plot like you're talking about, not only is it a stereotype of women just want a man, but a stereotype of women compete with each other for men. That women are not natural allies and sisters, but are natural competitors, caddy competitors with one another. Mm-hmm. getting the man is more important than than having friends. And uh, I do think that is problematic. Yeah. You know, Barbara Gordon, though, I mean, has just about constantly over the last several years been with a guy, right? Mm -hmm. And why do you think that is?
3: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, because that was another question I had for you, that, you know, how much shipping is too much.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm with you. I'm 100% Dick and Babs. Mm-hmm. I, I, don't, I don't care about anybody else. I try to like them, but I think of them as temporary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, Ricky, Kai, Ethan, eh, I just don't care. Luke, yeah. I didn't mind as much because I felt like them both having bat alter egos meant he was more like Dick Grayson. But, you know, I, I did read an interview with Gail Simone from a couple of years ago. Where she said that she that there is pressure to have romantic subplots for female characters. Hmm. So I guess she didn't go on much beyond that. But I would assume that it's because, again, of this stereotype that, well, females are very concerned with romance and only female characters are going to read Batgirl. And therefore, you should show Batgirl um, in some kind of relationship. Hmm. If it were if it were even, it would be okay, But it tends not to be even. Yeah.
3: Batman, because I also do a podcast for the Batman universe, and so I have to read Batman every month, and Mm -hmm. there's certainly no focus on finding a a relationship for him. There is a very beautiful relationship sometimes with his partners or his son Damien, but... If anything like that does happen, it like romantically, it seems very out of place. So that's interesting yeah. how. There,
1: there was that yeah. short little Catwoman interlude uh, there. I, th- yeah, I thought yeah, the yep. suits were great.
3: Mm-hmm. Oh boy. Well, yes. Barbara Gordy. That, this is actually another question I had because it seems like in every arc she has a different love interest. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, they're basically duds. And mm-hmm. I feel like. Each time they're written, it's pulling her characterization down because I don't understand why she shows any interest in them whatsoever. But how do you think writers should decide when to put their female and male characters with someone and when to leave them single but well-developed? Is there some sort of method or formula?
1: Hmm, I don't think there's a formula. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that would be really cool. I know, it, yeah. <laughs> But I think that if you if you're writing Barbara Gordon and you're looking back and you're like, okay, I'm now writing the fourth guy in a row. That's not that interesting, right? Then maybe I mean, look, maybe this is the time, right? Maybe I don't want to spoil Batgirl Eleven if you haven't reviewed it yet. (laughs) But um, no, I I think that this is the finale, right? We're about done with Ethan. Oh, that's not yes, yes. No, you won't spoil it. You can say anything you want. Yep. Okay, so so she and Ethan are done now. Yep. So it maybe now would be a good time for her to kind of take a step back and sort of reunite a bit with her friends and spend mm-hmm. more time with them and get get her new library science degree that she supposedly got a PhD in, in 1867. But don't get me started on that.
3: Yeah, I know. She's finding it again. She lost it before.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and what happened to her criminology? masters or whatever that was she was i don't
3: don't even know if she was a if she's a congresswoman anymore
1: i would guess not i don't think she's old enough i think you have to be you have to be 25 she's not Mm -hmm. i don't think she's 25 is she it's inconclusive it's inconclusive but (laughs) so so i think that if you're writing a character whether they're male or female you could kind of look back oh At what has come before you and say, okay, maybe now is a good time to do something different with this person. Mm -hmm. If they've been in one relationship after another, maybe take a break. If you never show them interested in romance, maybe now is a good time. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think having variety is a good way to go.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I don't want her to be, like, single for the rest of her life, but I just think there's some... (laughs) Great story opportunities where, and I think especially when she was globe-trotting, that that would have been the time because she said she wanted to discover herself, and I felt like she didn't really need some male to help her discover herself. But
1: Yeah, I felt like he was really more there, less for the romance and more to tie into the other stuff that was going on. Mm-hmm.
3: Well, a spoiler for a an upcoming story arc is apparently there's going to be some sort of Reuniting of Nightwing and Babs because some Villain from their past is Going to dredge up some old feelings mm-hmm. It's it's pretty vague What's going to happen but basically What I think is going to happen is They'll dance around it but in the end they'll say We can't be together again and so It'll be all for nothing because that's what they constantly Do to us
1: I would assume that too And is it but his girlfriend is Not pregnant now right
3: Correct and she also said she needed time Apart so they're not even
1: together yeah. Well, maybe now's a good time. <laughs> just <laughs> show up on your motorcycle outside her window. <laughs> there you go. Yep. Yeah. Go for a little ride or sit on top of a bridge and have a conversation and it would be good.
3: Uh, that just happened. Under go on a
1: trapeze. Done, they could do the trapeze oh. thing like that old birds of prey.
3: Number eight. What yeah, that's a
1: good action. one. Oh, that's a good one.
3: Well, while we are on the character of Batgirl, I do want to talk to you a little bit about her in particular. You mentioned her, and we just I just said it was inconclusive what age she is, but clearly hmm. she's younger than she was pre-Flashpoint. And perhaps even Gail Simone's run in the New 52, because it seems when the Burnside crew came around that uh, she was de-aged a little bit. Do you think that she loses some of her strong characteristics when she's de-aged, or is it just is age really just a number, and it's the same Barbara Gordon that we've been reading, just with a lower number than she had previously?
1: Yeah, I, think, I think that's a really good question, and I think that it could go either way, depending on how she's written and drawn. This is something I talk about in the book, too, because I talk about how not only was she de-aged In the comics, but she also was de-aged in animated form. Right, as you go from cartoon to cartoon, she keeps getting younger and (laughs) smaller. That's true. (laughs) Uh, I mean, she's like a tiny stick. When you get to the the last one, it's like this stylized little purple stick. So, on the one hand, when you make someone younger, and when you make them quite literally tinier, you you seem to be setting them up to be not as strong not as physically strong and not as mentally strong because they're younger and they just don't have the same kind of experiences so just looking at it it could very easily mean that you're undercutting this character on the other hand it's also true that if you make someone younger and look smaller but you keep their same in the characteristics that we've seen in Barbara Gordon over 50 years if you keep all that same stuff in that smaller body that can also be a good trick where you have people kind of underestimating her and her like totally exceeding their expectations. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's basically the way that Buffy the Vampire Slayer is set up. Right. Right. She's a dumb blonde. She's a cheerleader. She's five foot nothing, but she's going to kill you. Mm -hmm. Only undead people, not humans. Yes. (laughs) But, (laughs) but, um, But you could work it that way as well. So I think it just has to be someone who is really taking care to not make her this funny little pixie. Mm-hmm. And someone who is writing her in the way that we all know she can be written, a character who's really well-rounded, who's nuanced, who has depth, who's super smart. When, with um, Batgirl of Burnside, I actually asked Babs Starr about that, and she said she wasn't considering, considering her younger than New 52 Barbara, because okay. New 52 Barbara is supposed to be 21. Okay. And so Babs Tarr said something to the effect of, look, when people are 21, they are kind of like kids in a way, and they're going to be, like, up on, on fashion, and they're not always going to make good decisions. Barbara's a little different, of course, because she's so smart, and she has this crime-fighting history behind her. So I agree with you that she looks younger than the than new 52 Barbara, but apparently she's not. Okay. What do you think about Chris Wild Goose? Do you think she looks younger there, too, or about the same as Burnside? I think about the same as
3: Burnside because I think following such a popular run as Burnside was... I think artists were trying to both forge their own path as well as borrow from Babstar. Mm-hmm. So I feel like, as Hope Larson said, it's not as cotton candy flavored. I think that's the, those are the words she used when I interviewed her once. It's not as cutesy, I guess, because Babstar mm-hmm. has a really specific flavor to her that I love. But I feel like it's in the general same age group that she's been in. hmm. But I just doesn't she seem older with Gail Simone though she acts older in that run though
1: well I think yeah I think I think part of it was the way she was drawn but I think the acting older was that she's working through her survivor's guilt mm-hmm. and also she's so adrift I mean she doesn't have a good relationship with her father she doesn't have any of the birds around she doesn't have um, Dick Grayson around and she's sort of... I don't know. I guess uh, uh, I guess that stuff will age you, <laughs> those mm-hmm. depressing things. And so I guess Burnside, their idea was she's going to try to shed all that.
3: Do you have a preference for Barbara's characterization, any of the runs that either have happened New 52 onwards or perhaps pre- Flashpoint? Do you have a favorite? Hmm. Or I guess I, in your mind, what's your ideal Barbara Gordon? How would you describe her?
1: Oh, that's hard. Okay, well, I guess my... My ideal Barbara Gordon is former Congresswoman Barbara Gordon, Ph.D., mm-hmm. who fights crime with Dick Grayson, and then she becomes Oracle and she runs the Birds of Prey. Mm-hmm. So that means I'm sort of at odds with everything from the last several years.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately
1: so. That doesn't mean, though, that I don't enjoy – I mean, I would say that of the last several years, I think the Batgirl of Burnside is my favorite but that doesn't mean I don't like the current run. I do. And I appreciated the new 52 run. I did not enjoy reading it. I can't say that I did, but I also, I do understand that Gail Simone had certain constraints that she had to deal with. And she's been kind of more open about that, that that editor, her editor basically told her, you know, she, (laughs) she can't really have friends and her father can't know she's Batgirl and it has to be very dark. And there's only so much you can do with that. Mm-hmm. But I like uh, I like Oracle. I like Barbara as Oracle. Mm-hmm. I do not like Gus as Oracle.
3: Okay. Yes. And oh, yeah. I'm sort of done with him. I do have a question later on about men in the Birds of Prey, but I think I will uh, save that for you. Okay. For so keep Gus in the back of your mind. Well, I want to mm. move on, <laughs> unless you don't want to. Uh, mo- <laughs> so moving on to authenticity. In your introduction, you talk about authenticity and in response to a quote from Peggy Phelan, you Mm -hmm, say that uh, we need to increase not only the number of new female characters, but also their diversity, depth and quality. And then you continue... We need more diverse creators across media that not only foreground previously underrepresented groups, but also tell authentic stories. You do go on to say that, of course, it's not like men aren't capable of telling stories, but we just need more that represent the groups that they're writing for. And so I wondered, do you think that this potentially is a realistic goal? Do you think that we will, or even possible, do you think we will ever reach a point where if there's a female-led book, that a female is going to write it? You know, if we've got someone writing Black Panther, that person should be African American. Do you think we'll ever reach that? Do you think this is a realistic goal?
1: Well, I think that it's possible because we live in a very diverse world. We've seen the same kinds of characters with the same kinds of stories from the same kinds of people for a really long time. But like you said, well, I guess like you said, like I said, it doesn't, doesn't mean that male writers can't write great female characters. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of, I could name you, you know, a bunch of my favorite writers and many of them are male. I mean, my favorite comics, some of my favorite comics writers are male um, and writing male characters and female characters. But I, what I was trying to get at is that when you look back at like 80 years of comics, you tend to see basically white male Cisgender, heterosexual, non-disabled people writing comics. And you tend to see that exact same population overrepresented as superheroes. They're like 75% of the whole universe of superheroes. And I think it's fair to say 75% of Earth is not white, male, cisgender, heterosexual, non-disabled people. So there have been, unfortunately, a lot of stereotypical portrayals of other types of people. And because they've been so much less numerous, each one of those characters has had to carry like a lot of representational weight. So like if you look back at, if you look at Justice League now and Justice League in 1965, It was almost always like six guys and Wonder Woman. Mm -hmm. So the six guys could be all very different from each other. Well, I mean, they're all white, but they could be very different from each other. They could represent a spectrum of manhood, right? But you have Wonder Woman, and she has to like represent all women. So if she's written very stereotypically, and lots of times she was, it's not a good look for the ladies, you know? Well, all right, I don't want to get too specific about that. But If you look at the most popular writers on Amazon, the people who are selling the most books on Amazon, half of them are women, but only like just over 10% of superhero comics are written by women. It can't be because women can't write or else women wouldn't be, you know, half of the most popular authors that are selling the most books around the world. So the problem with comics is that the way you get a job is just not merit based. If DC and Marvel had blind submission policies, I think that would make a world of difference. Because then they really would be able to see what are the best stories written by the best people, but that's not how they do it. Mm -hmm. You get a writer or artist job in comics because you get a call, and you're going to get a call because you know someone. And there are all kinds of studies that show that when people reach out to mentor somebody, to, to put out a hand for somebody, they almost always stretch out that hand to someone who demographically matches them who reminds them of themselves when they were younger. And so that just kind of perpetuates the same groups of people writing the same stories. And and I'm not saying fire white dudes, <laughs> because <laughs> comics is not a zero-sum game. If you have more stories by more people, you just have more titles. The comics industry can support more titles at any given time. It's just that different people would be buying different ones. Mm -hmm. So it's not like trying to take anything away from anybody to say that we should add more voices, add more diverse voices that might bring different points of view. I don't think a black man always has to write a black man or that a Chinese American woman always has to write a Chinese American character. But I think it would not be a bad place to start to let people tell their own stories instead of letting dominant groups keep telling them as we have done for hundreds of years
3: yeah i I think about you just mentioned the chinese american and i suddenly thought of the joy luck club and that book (laughs) that book would not be the way it is or the movie i think is also very popular if it were written by anyone else but it was written by amy tan and it was based Mm -hmm. partially on her family and her experiences but it would never have worked out the way it has, I think, and is as
1: great as it is. Or I, I can say, you know, Chris Claremont is one of my favorite writers oh, ever. yes. But it's possible that a Chinese-American woman might not have had Jubilee have fireworks powers.
2: Mm.
1: Because that's like the most stereotypically Chinese thing. <laughs> oh, no. I never thought
3: about that.
1: Well... That's why I'm here, Stella. I guess so. <laughs>
3: You're opening my eyes to all these horrors that have been locked oh, sorry. deep inside me. <laughs>
2: <Sorry>. <laughs> oh, goodness.
3: Well, to be honest, there's one character that continues to puzzle me, and I think it's because she's not dealt with well, and it's Alicia Yao. Mm. And I just think ever since Gail Simone dropped that she was transgender, people have been fuddling around with how to deal with that. Mm -hmm. And there was even some confusion, for me anyways, uh, in the newest run where she was saying how a doctor misgendered her, and I mm-hmm. was trying to figure out, like, how, how that could happen. <laughs> but that's just an example of something where I would love someone to speak truth into that character, because I think things would be cleared up. But do you have any thoughts on that character? Are you as in the dark as I am, or
1: am I the only one out there? Well, when she said she was misgendered, yeah, what I took that to mean is that the doctor you're talking about she. She and Joe go to a doctor, right? Um, because they want to have a baby.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And so, if Alicia is saying the doctor misgendered me, I took that to mean that the doctor addressed Alicia as being male, mm-hmm. the sex that we assume she was assigned at birth. Mm-hmm. But Alicia doesn't identify as male; she identifies as a woman named Alicia. Right. So I assume the doctor said something to her like, and you'll be the father of this baby or <laughs> I don't know, something. Yeah. <laughs> and Alicia w- was hurt by that. And that yeah. is and on the one hand, that was a scene that I think was written kind of clumsily. Mm-hmm. It would have been better to show it rather than tell it. Mm-hmm. But I understood what they were trying to do. They were trying to say this is something that happens to mm-hmm. to transgendered women like Alicia and it's hurtful. And so we should just be aware of how people want to be identified and we should be empathetic about that and we should just be aware and concerned and try to do our best. Absolutely. So it's hard to know, like even the way Gail Simone had her say, I'm transgender, Barbara. It was like a panel close up on her face of that. There are some people who feel like, oh, that's so obvious that she had to announce it. That's so unsubtle. And then there were other people who were like, this is the greatest thing in the world because I had to say those words myself. Mm. Or a friend of mine said those words to me. So it seems like you can't really please everyone yeah. with the way that she's going to be written. Mm-hmm. I think that, that Gail or someone like a Kelly Sue DeConnick, they're very good at like reaching out to people who – Are parts of communities that they themselves are not part of because Mm -hmm. they want to be sure to get things right. I would assume the same of the people who are writing it now. Yeah. But this is where authentic voices become important. And if Mm -hmm. you're unsure, if you're writing and you're unsure about something, just ask. I'm sure people would rather be asked before something is published than to see it than to have it come out and just like be horrified by it.
3: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think the art never helped either because i always just saw i I just assumed alicia was a girl it's not like she had really manly or masculine features which i guess alicia would approve of but i feel like maybe that might also lend to my confusion because she just looks
1: like a you know a girl but. Which is going to be true of um, some people who identify as transgender, but it's going to be not true of others. Mm-hmm. And so that there's like, just like with everything else, there's there's a spectrum of people. And because Alicia is the only one that puts so much pressure on this one character to represent everyone who would identify as a transgender woman. I shouldn't even say transgender woman, who identify as a woman, right? right. So. So it makes it hard. If you have more characters that are like Alicia, then it, you could have different kinds of features and different kinds of body shapes. I mean, there there's very little diversity of body shape in female characters as it is. Mm-hmm. But I agree with you. I think in particular, Babs Tar drew her as having basically the same body as the other female characters. Right. And that's certainly something that happens. But for other people, it's not feasible or affordable. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, there's there's a spectrum of it. It would be great if you had a broader representation. More more people is always better, I think.
3: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Well, moving on to more questions about female characters. <laughs>
3: uh, one one could say that female characters should be just strong characters, period. Mm-hmm. That yeah. happen to be female rather than being defined by their XX chromosomes. But should there be some distinct quality about them that separates them from their male counterparts and perhaps prevents them from being switched out for a male? I think, for example, as a reverse, we had Doctor Strange and the Ancient One, who is normally masculine, was actually switched out for a female. And Hogarth in... Jessica Jones, as well as she appears briefly in Iron Fist, was originally a a male in Mm -hmm. the comics. So that works because, of course, we want more female characters. But if the reverse happened, I think there'd there'd be an issue. So I think in particular for Captain Marvel. Is there something that separates her from other male superheroes that might be in the military that prevents her character from being, Carol Danvers, being switched out with a male? Is there something that should define them, or could they just be easily switched out with a male counterpart?
1: Hmm. Well, I think that any character that's well written is well rounded, and they wouldn't be able to be reduced to any one quality, whether it's Mm -hmm. their strength or their gender. So a good character is a good character, whether male or female. But I think Carol Danvers is a good example of this. The the reality is, that females walk through the world differently from males because we're brought up to believe that males and females are different and should be different. And because females are generally treated unequally to males, whether it's within families or at work or in politics or in media, what have you. So Carol Danvers in her history, um, you know, if you read like way back Captain Marvel, sorry, way back Ms. Marvel, when she was Ms. Marvel, you find that she, the way Chris Claremont wrote her backstory was that she wanted to, to go to college, but her father was like, no, I'm not giving you money to do that because women don't go to college. And I'll pay for your brother to go to college, but not you. And Carol then sees a recruitment poster for the Air Force. And that's part of why she decides to do that, not only because she knows that she'll love the military and she'll love flying, but also because that's the way she's going to get an education. And so that particular thing about her that she's feeling like she has to prove herself, that someone tried to hold her back because of her gender and underestimated her because of it, that's part of her, because that's part of her experience in life. So you can't lose that. So if that, in the example of her, there is something recognizably, recognizably female about her, and it's the way that she was discriminated against in that way in the past... How you do it with other characters, though, is an open question. Like do, like with Carol or, or with others, do you show a female character dealing with being underestimated? Yes, probably, because that's probably happened to a lot of women. But then then it gets a little tricky because, like, do you show her being more concerned with how she looks than a male character is? And. That's a reality because women are judged more harshly for how they look. But you don't want to portray it as being normal and okay because it's not okay. So this is where authenticity is important. Like Barbara Gordon looking into her makeup mirror to see how she looks while Batman and Robin are fighting (laughs) criminals and asking – Why are
3: you bringing this terrible story (laughs) up?
1: (laughs) Because I'm saying – I'm saying this is not how you do it. This is not how you call attention to someone being female. No thank you, Gardner Fox, in 1968, right? (laughs) But here's another way that you call attention to the fact that women are have to think about their appearance. Black Canary tells Wonder Woman that if she's going to fight in the criminal underworld, she should dress sexily because that's what people expect. And then Wonder Woman looks at these skimpy outfits that Black Canary is showing her and high heels and whatever and says she can't even walk in that outfit, let alone fight in it. That's how you do it because it draws attention to something that women have to deal with that men don't, that becomes something that is a part of women – But you're also critiquing it at the same time, you know. So I think that – and that was written by Gail Simone in uh, 2009, I want to say. So I think this is where a more authentic voice or someone who's going to reach out to people who have had different experiences from them really makes a lot of difference in how you show female and male characters differently. Does that make sense?
3: It does make sense, yeah. It was a question that I was asked once by someone, and I wasn't sure how to answer it. So I wondered if you had a particular answer, in 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 particular about Captain Marvel,
1: whom I love. No, uh, it, you, yeah, yeah, it's tricky. It's tricky, and I think and one of the things that I talk about in the book, and I think that in some ways it did turn out to be the case, is that I was sort of thinking that the Wonder Woman movie, because it would have so much riding on it, would be much more prone to show a lot of her beating people up (laughs) with a sword and shield than it would be her reaching out her hand in compassion and calling women sister and stuff like that. In other words, that they would try to make, make her into what Greg Rucka calls the version of wonder woman. That's basically a quote unquote guy with tits. (laughs) Mm. And that's more palatable. I think to some people that it makes male and female characters more interchangeable. But until we have like, total equality on planet Earth. Male and female are not really interchangeable in that way. Mm -hmm. Yep,
3: I agree. So back to this uh, thought with birds of prey, because I think it sort of relates there. Birds of prey, for the most part, and traditionally, I should say, was mainly female-based. But there have come times where males pop onto the team. Now, they Mm -hmm. could just be in an associate or an advisor capacity, Mm -hmm. like Blue Beetle kind of helped out Babs at one point. There was some shipping there. Or they could be (laughs) fully fledged on the team like Hawk was on the team with Dove, which Mm -hmm. I did not. He annoyed me. And now we have Gus. So, question here is do you think it changes the nature of the team, Birds of Prey in particular, when a male
1: pops on? I think it has tended to, yes. And there are I could say I agree with you about Hawk, (laughs) but I didn't mind Savant and Creote. What did you think of those guys?
3: Those weren't too bad. I just, it feels weird for some reason.
1: Yeah, I think a big part of Birds of Prey is not, it's not about discrimination and keeping Mm -hmm. males off of a team, but it's about... When you look across hundreds of titles and you see that most of them are starring male characters or have teams that are almost completely dominated by male characters, if you only have, I don't know, 12% of titles that star uh, female characters or have a team that is even half female – I think that means to have an all-female team becomes kind of a big deal. And it allows you to focus more on a spectrum of female characters. And it allows, this is not the greatest phrase, but it's almost like having a safe space within comics to explore female characters. Mm -hmm. Having said that, I I don't mind when anybody cycles in and out of Birds of Prey. I think that it was kind of cool when you had a more expanded team. And it was also kind of cool when it just kind of retracts back to the three of them, or even in the very beginning to just the two of them, Black Canary and Oracle. Mm -hmm. But I think the Gus issue is different. It it bothers me because, again, like I was saying before, it's a choice. And why would you make a choice to have not only a male character lead them, which is the point of the comic is to try to not have that to begin with, but in terms of age, he seems quite young. Mm -hmm. So you have someone who's both male and younger leading them, which is just sort of like, we've seen that. We've seen that. And we've seen it because of stereotypes of women as being unable to lead themselves. So we don't need to see it here. And why, I just don't know why you would do it. Why would you not use a female character that was already in the universe? Why would you not use Frankie? Why would you not use, if you want to go back further, Wendy, Proxy, Mm -hmm. who was clearly being groomed to be like a new Oracle? Right. Frankie and Wendy are both women with a disability and computer skills. It's just, it seems so logical to me that one of them would have made more sense. Mm-hmm. So I just don't see if you're going to come up with a totally new character, why this is the kind of character you would come up with. Yeah. Or Nadima, or, Nadima, or Alicia, or Charles uh, Misfit. <laughs> yep.
3: The, well, Nadima, I haven't even seen her in this run.
1: Or Kadir. No. Was Nanima maybe on the last page of this past issue? I thought maybe that was her. Oh,
3: with the house rewarming party? Yeah, yeah. Perhaps, but it's not like she said anything. No, she didn't speak. She
1: didn't speak, no.
3: Yeah, He's an interesting character. I'm very hesitant towards him. because Clearly, we shouldn't trust him. No. I don't know why the birds do, but now all of a sudden they do, and they're going to bring him into the fold, even though there's something sketchy going on with him. I found it interesting when he was relating... Way back, I guess it was maybe the first issue or second issue. Oh, no, we had revealed it was Gus. But Mm. he was going and he was talking about when Oracle was gone. Everyone had these crazy ideas of what Oracle was doing. And there was like a picture of someone at the beach or um, I can't remember all the different little vignettes that they had. But all of the imaginings that this hacker community had was of or, or were of a male character. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you noticed that, but cl- so almost saying like clearly this hacker genius could not be a female.
1: Well, it's, okay. that's I, I was sort of amused by that, because, although now that it turned out to be Gus, it's not quite as amusing. But the reason it amused <laughs> me is because of the number of times in Gail Simone's Birds of Prey when someone assumed that Barbara was male because she was Oracle. Like I'm pretty sure Calculator did. And there were a couple other kind of less prominent people that did. And to me, she did it on purpose to make a comment on the fact that you shouldn't make that assumption, that you shouldn't just assume that if someone is super adept with computers, and authoritative, uh, they must be male. But uh, this was not this was not that. And it could be that the character of Gus turns out to be awesome. It's just that This one comic, historically, is one of, I can think, is one of two two comics in the history of all comics, the other one being A-Force, that is usually an all-female team.
3: Right. Yeah. And I feel like we we lost a little something with Barbara not being behind the computer. Oh, yeah. But, but I mean, I guess (laughs) since she has her mobility, are they just going to sit her behind the screen in a chair? But you're right about using other characters that were pushing... Towards that position, but Wendy, we've not seen her at all, and Frankie. I know there was some editorial. Basically, they told the the Burnside team that no, she was not going to be Oracle. Hmm. So I think there were some issues there.
1: Well, I did see an interview with the with the Bensons, and they said one. I don't remember which one. Sorry, but one. They kind of opened with the sentence. You know, well, Bert. The whole point of Birds of Prey is that uh, Barbara is Oracle, and I was like what (laughs) and i didn't know if they were kind of recapping old birds of prey or if they meant like this is where we're going with our birds of prey Mm, yeah well i mean the whole
3: first arc potential or half of it anyways was you know
1: this person who is
3: Mm -hmm. pretending to be oracle but yeah i wouldn't say that that was the point of birds of prey (laughs) wow well as we start to end here, I want to talk about films and females in films, and especially female-led okay. films. And my first question is <laughs> well, it's about Catwoman and Electra. which Oh, oh that's Cat-
1: unfortunate. <laughs> I
3: know. Catwoman, I personally thought was actually pretty bad. Electra it was okay, but probably I only liked it because it was Jennifer Garner, and I'm mm-hmm. a big fan of Alias. But why do you think that these female-led films of the early 2000s failed like they did?
1: Well, I'm just going to say it. They failed because they weren't very good. Mm. And that—and I, I mean in terms of, of writing. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that I don't like those two lead actresses. I, I do. Mm-hmm. But to blame a movie's failure on the gender of the star just is ridiculous. Because movies starring men felt fail every single year at the box office, and no one ever says, well, clearly it's because it was a man. <laughs> yeah. so let's not make any more movies with men. I mean, that just doesn't even make any sense. But somehow, when it was said about these two movies that were starring women, it like became conventional wisdom because it sort of fit in to old standing ideas of, you know, male fans won't pay to see female characters, which, by the way, is demonstrably economically false. Um, I mean, there's if you look at global box office returns, it's just false. I could name you 10 movies starring women that have made a ton of money in the last several years. But anyway, there have been plenty of failed male, not only male starring movies, but male superhero movies, too, that weren't written that well. I'm sure we could both name 10 of those too (laughs) (laughs) yes and 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 one of them you know like one that didn't make a ton of money and was uh starring Hugh Jackman right but we're gonna give him another chance because we know it's okay um we're gonna keep making Fantastic Four movies or or, uh we're gonna keep making Batman movies even though Batman and Robin was terrible like no one said well it's because Batman stinks as a character Mm. that Batman and Robin was bad right so I just think that when you have a, a well-written movie, people go to the movie and like the movie. And when it helps when you have it well-produced and well-directed and well-acted and and well-marketed, you have to have all those things put together, really. But I, again, I think it was just because blaming it on the star fits in with that conventional wisdom. It's like that Marvel publicity guy a few weeks ago who said, people don't want diverse books and that's why Marvel's sales are declining. And then like a week later it kind of came out that he was told that by two retailers out of 14 retailers but it got a lot of press because it sort of fit into this idea that diverse books um, that don't star long-standing male white superheroes are going to fail like they they weren't ready to hear something like Maybe Marvel sales are declining because they've raised prices and turned Captain America into a Hydra agent and they have constant events and relaunches. That doesn't, doesn't fit with old stereotypes, unfortunately.
3: On another side, the Wonder Woman animated film, which I actually, that's one of my favorites. I think that mm-hmm. was really well done. We were
1: told,
3: <laughs> and I say we, I should say I, but we were told that it didn't sell
1: well. That's not true.
3: I Yes, yeah, so this is funny because well, let me give you some history that you might not know about me. It was rumored around the time it was released, like afterwards, that they were going to do a Batgirl Year One animated film. But yeah. because Wonder Woman did not sell well, as we are told, they decided to scrap that. And I did this like huge... <laughs> petition and sent it into the WB offices and I got a nice letter back that basically said they weren't going to do it and I had seen Bruce Timm one time at San Diego Comic Con and asked do you think we'll ever get one and he's like no probably not but then here I come to read the Wonder Woman section in your book
1: mm-hmm. and you're
3: giving me figures that contradict that so you're saying I didn't get a row year one film and I was lied to
1: yes that's what I'm saying <laughs> because numbers don't lie that Wonder that 2009 Wonder Woman DVD made quite a bit of money (laughs) and made and has made more money. You can you can look this up on a website called uh, I want to say Box Office Mojo. And you can look up how much, for instance, the quote unquote, new 52 animated films have made on DVD versus this Wonder Woman 2009 film. And what you see is not, unfortunately, Stella, what you were told.
3: Mm. It's. I just, oh my goodness. And then following Wonder Woman, I think the next animated film was Batman, Superman, Apocalypse. Mm -hmm. But but what really got me, and I talked about this, I think, on another show, is that it's based off of the comic story Batman, Superman, Supergirl. Yes. So even though she's like one of the main characters in there, they got rid of that title, perhaps to sell more units. But I just thought, what a travesty right there.
1: No, I I agree. And again, I mean, the experience with the Wonder Woman DVD is quite telling. That this idea that I mean, it's kind of like people have this uh, this idea that you can't have a woman starring in a movie, or it won't make money. And even when they see financial evidence to the contrary, they still believe it. They still believe it. And it's just so painful because. Clearly, people would love a Batgirl year one oh. animated movie. I mean, what's yes. not to love about Batgirl mm-hmm. year one? It's great. And we already we know that people like Batgirl. She's mm-hmm. been a popular character for 50 years. And people loved her on the TV show. People love her in animated form. You know, it's just that's why there's apparently going to be a Batgirl movie, mm-hmm. which is great if it happens. Yeah. If you look at uh, lists of like the top selling movies of the last several years, worldwide making some over a billion dollars and some in the hundreds of millions you're going to see hunger games and snow white and the huntsman and the twilight movies and alice in wonderland and maleficent and the fast and the furious and lucy and the force awakens and rogue one these movies made a ton of money a ton of money and so it's just people need to look at evidence and incorporate that evidence into their worldviews instead of just dismissing evidence that doesn't fit with whatever their worldview is.
2: Mm -hmm.
3: So do you think there's a lot riding on the Wonder Woman film in terms of leading the way
1: for other films that are led by female heroes? Totally. Yeah. There's a tremendous pressure. I mean, I feel badly for them. Tremendous pressure on, (laughs) on Gal Gadot and on Patty Jenkins, although... The numbers are out. Wonder Woman is now uh, the top opening weekend for a female director ever. Woo! And Wonder Woman has made more money in this one weekend than many other superhero films made in their first weekend. I wish I had a list in front of me, but I'm sorry, I don't. So, again, this idea that males won't go to see movies starring females, it's just false. Mm. Absolutely. And but it, I think what's what's so painful is that if there really is a bias against films starring women by male fans, in some ways it's not surprising because I mean if you just look look around you see what lots of people are saying to boys on a playground, right? They're saying don't cry like a girl and don't play with those toys mm-hmm. because they're for girls and don't run like a girl. You're telling boys that it's a terrible thing to be like a girl. So there must mm-hmm. be something bad about it, right? And then you produce media where girls are usually absent, or if they're present, they're just supporting characters or super emotional or weak or interested in romance, like you said. And you explain away violence against women by asking what they were wearing or how they provoked it. And you explain away unequal pay by saying women just want to take time off to spend with their kids. So when you teach boys from an early age that girls don't matter and women are lesser and they deserve the inequalities they get, then it becomes not so mysterious if it is true that males prefer to watch males than watch females on a screen. It's not a little depressing there. Sorry.
3: <laughs> no, no, well, it's, un- it's depressing because it's true. There was an interview, I think it was a very brief one with Emma Watson. And I think mm-hmm. she was also being distracted by kittens. I think there were kittens <laughs> in the interview. I don't really know why they would do such a thing. But somebody asked her about, are we in a post-feminist or post-feminism
1: age? And she said, no. Do you agree with that? I totally agree with that because although feminism has oddly negative connotations for a lot of people, the actual definition of it, even if you just look it up in any dictionary, is feminism is the belief that males and females should have equal opportunity, period. Mm-hmm. It's not. There's nothing about man-hating, there's nothing about putting men down, there's nothing about women are superior to men. It's just about having equal opportunity, and I, I know that we're not there yet. I mean, that's what I teach. I, I teach political science, and I teach civil rights law, and I teach about discrimination. So, I mean, it's still out there. We're, we're not done yet. There's a lot more to yeah. do.
3: Absolutely. You mentioned backroll in that film. What would you like to see if this film happens?
1: (sighs) Well, what I would like to see, like, I mean, I said it before, it would be like Barbara has been a congresswoman or she is a congresswoman, maybe. And she's fighting crime with Dick and she has her Ph.D. and she does martial arts. And then I would also like to see in the same movie she becomes Oracle doesn't mean you have to show lots of gross, right. violent stuff to do that, but she becomes Oracle, and, and she runs the birds of prey. To me, th- those are the best things about Barbara Gordon and the things that make her different from other kinds of female superheroes. Mm-hmm. But it's my understanding that what we're going to get is new 52 Barbara. Yeah. Buffy is one of my favorite things, and so I think that Joss Whedon is fully capable of delivering a Batgirl That could be a young and serious person who wants to do good, who has lots of pressure on her, and sometimes it's melodramatic, but sometimes it's light, and she has an interesting supporting cast around her. That's what he did with the character of Buffy, so I don't see why he couldn't also do it with Barbara. That formula worked. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But it could be super dark and lonely. I don't know. Yeah.
3: See, that's, that's my concern, is that I feel like... Gil Simone's run, which he has said that he's sort of going to that well for the story, was really dark. Uh, Darker than I think was necessary. And I do know, you know, there are some editorial mandates, but Mm -hmm. For me, Barbara Gordon is very much the bright spot of the Batman universe because Batman is the dark character and there's tragedy and everything. But tragedy didn't cause Barbara Gordon to become Batgirl. She wanted to do something at first for a joke to get at her father, which is pretty funny, but then also because she cares about people. She cares, cares about the human race and so she wanted to help out and I think that that should inform the tone of everything that she does and how
1: she's presented. I agree. And you, she, very often we have male superhero characters who become superheroes because of a tragedy. And um, Batgirl chooses. She chooses to do good. And Wonder Woman is the same way. Well, maybe not in the movie, but Wonder Woman uh, also comes to America to teach peace and love and equality. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I do think that. There's a brightness and an optimism and a hope and an earnestness to both of those characters. And mm-hmm. that really sets them apart and and makes them easy to hold on to. We all want and need heroes. They, they embody our hopes and dreams, right? And we, we want to try to live up to their example.
3: Well, one of my final questions, I left it at the end because I don't know how prepared you are for this. But are you aware of this sounds like a bad question, but are you aware of Harry Potter? Yes, I am. Okay, okay. Well, I just wanted to start there. I was thinking about this as I was reading your book, and I just wondered if you had any thoughts on the portrayal of Hermione and her role in the series. As it, How would you tackle her character if you were to write another chapter on that? This is a big question. So, you know, if it's too much, you don't have to answer. But it was just something that I thought about because this is almost like your childhood because it's a female and her two male best friends, yes. right? So I just wondered if you had any thoughts on this particular character.
1: And I love Hermione. And I think that she is, she's not like lots of other stereotypical female characters who are just supportive and require rescue you know damsels in distress kind of character who and just kind of like window dressing she's not that at all she's integral to the plot she's integral to various victories and i think it was also realistic although unfortunate to have her peers be annoyed by her like always raising her hand and answering questions in class because that's how kids are and especially toward girls but in the end her value is very clear it would be nice if we, we all knew that at younger ages. Um, so I would like to believe that the series helps to show that brains are super important and girls are super important. I, I hope that's how people took Hermione. I mean, that's general. Pe- you know, people I know tend to feel that way, and there's academic writing about it. But that doesn't mean that there aren't people who read those stories and felt like she was just an irritant. <laughs>
3: Maybe only in the beginning. Maybe. uh, (laughs) I do love how capable she is because, you know, Harry Potter's the main character. And, of course, he is the one that everyone talks about. But she's very often the one that's saving everybody's necks. That's right. (laughs) So I think that's great. Yeah, exactly. Well, overall, how far do you think we've come with female representation in pop culture and what sort of things need to happen or continue for us to keep progressing?
1: It really is getting better. There are more female superheroes and they are more diverse and they're written in more nuanced ways and they are less sexualized and less objectified. When you look at fiction just in general, like outside of comics but including comics, what you generally find is that about one-quarter to one-third of characters in books, movies, and TV tend to be women, and about one-fifth of starring roles tend to be women, so like 20%. And again, obviously, women are more than 20% of the population of the planet, (laughs) so clearly it's still unequal, but those numbers are better than they were decades ago. The thing is about comics is that – even though it's been described as a zeitgeist and it's this great new trend and there's, there's a lot of anger against it and fears about it from other people, even while it's being strongly encouraged and pushed for by, by different quarters, it's all really only on the margins numerically because the universe of superheroes is still overwhelmingly male and white and heterosexual and, and non-disabled. If you look at, for instance, superhero TV shows on air in development, there are about 25 of them. And only two of them star women, right? Supergirl, Mm -hmm. Jessica Jones. If you look at superhero movies that are out or in development, only three out of 60 star women. (laughs) That's 4%. Wonder Woman and Captain Marvel and Batgirl. If you look at the top 200 superhero comics that star female characters, it's about 13%. And only about that same percentage of those comics are written or drawn by women. Now, Those are super duper small numbers, but it's also true that 5, 10, and 15 years ago, it was half that number. So percentage-wise, it's great growth. It's just that in real numbers, it's still really small. And um, most of the female characters and creators are still, you know, white and heterosexual and able-bodied and Mm -hmm. the same kind of population that we've been seeing over and over. So that's why I feel like we still need more diverse creators and more diverse characters and we need more diverse and authentic representations because it's just it's it's not just about reading a fun story it's that like i was saying we all want to be heroes you know (laughs) we all want to be the heroes of our own lives so we want and need heroes to look up to and it's just easier to imagine yourself as a hero if you see someone who looks like you represented as a hero and underrepresented groups really really need that And overrepresented groups need to see heroes that don't look like them because they need to know that anybody can be a hero. And that's why representation matters, really, in the end. Mm -hmm. So I think we can do better. I think there are ways that the comic industry can do better. Like I was saying before, just blind submissions is one of those ways. You know, that helps you judge on merit rather than on who you know. And I think that could really open up what the kinds of things that we get, the kinds of stories that we can have. Or I would just say... BTO listeners, write your own stories. (laughs) Yeah,
3: absolutely. And and hopefully your book lights a fire under some of these creators and editors and things to get this ball rolling. Oh, that
1: would be nice. I mean, I, I certainly plan to keep talking and writing about superheroes and how and why certain types of superheroes are underrepresented and why representation matters and I'm gonna keep mm-hmm. updating the analyses I've already done and I'd like to add other characters like like you were saying before. So yeah, I mean I'll I'll try to keep doing what I can do. Fiction writing is not for me. I'm a nonfiction writer. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll keep pushing.
3: Do you think you'll be on any panels at San Diego Comic
1: Con? Not that I know of because I wasn't planning to go to San Diego Comic-Con, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, mostly because I have kind of a crazy – I'm having kind of a crazy summer. I mean, I'm going to be on another podcast this week, and next week I'm going to be at the National Museum for Women in the Arts on a panel called Who are the New Superwomen of the Universe? Oh. That's going to be cool because Gabby Rivera will be on it. She writes oh. America. And Ashley Woods, who's drawn Niobe and Lady Castle, and Ariel Johnson, who owns Amalgam Comics and Coffee in Philadelphia, then I'm going to be in Philadelphia – I'm sorry, then I'm going to be in – not Philadelphia, but London. And so I just was – and then I'm moving. So I really was not – Oh, gosh. So I didn't didn't plan anything for San Diego because I just assumed I couldn't pull it off. But now I'm going for the awards ceremony, you know, not Mm -hmm. for the whole time, but – Sorry, that was a long answer to your question of do I have – am I going to be on a panel there? But that's why I I am not.
3: Well, it sounds pretty exciting, all the other stuff you're going to be doing. It's
1: stuff. It's definitely stuff, yeah.
3: (laughs) (laughs) So what's next for you? I I guess you kind of already answered that you're going to continue writing analyses and papers and things, but do you have your eye on anything in particular?
1: No. I mean pretty much just I I would like to – I'll write some short pieces that update the kind of stuff that I've already done. About the, like this podcast that I'll be on tomorrow night, for instance. I will, well, I'm not sure if it's tomorrow night for your listeners, but it's tomorrow night in real time. Um, that'll be all about the Wonder Woman movie, and I'll probably write something about that. Uh, and I'm sure as stuff comes out about, the Batgirl movie. I will try to incorporate that as well. But yeah, I'd also like to talk about other characters like Jessica Jones and Misty Knight and Colleen Wing and Supergirl. Mm-hmm. There really, there yeah. was no Supergirl TV show when I started my research, and certainly there's mm-hmm. decades of Supergirl comics, and she's been in animated series, and um, there's the Supergirl movie. So there's definitely stuff to talk about with her. Mm-hmm
3: and there's a beautiful gay relationship in there. Yeah, and season 2. It,
1: yeah, although the the woman who plays Maggie Sawyer is not going to be a regular next year. She's going to be, Oh boy. She, yeah, she's going to be recurring. So I'm not sure what that means really, but I thought that that was really well done and mm-hmm. I thought her the coming out story was really well done as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean I the, the show is earnest, <laughs> but I I really do appreciated i think that they're doing a good job overall
3: yeah absolutely yeah it's one of my favorites to watch every week yeah well i cannot say how much of a pleasure it's been
1: to talk with you well me too thank you so much for having me i listen to the show i listen to the show all the time
3: oh thank you and i already bought a copy of your book for one of my friends So uh, I'm already trying to (laughs) farm you out to other people. So I'll I'll try to be, I'll try to push the word as much as I can. So thank you so much for uh, giving me your time and coming on the show.
1: Yeah, Thank you for asking. It's been great.
3: Well, you can send any questions or comments about this show to me at BatgirlTheOracle at gmail.com. And in particular, if you have any questions for Carolyn, also send them my way or post them on the website. Now, I will be sure to forward them to her. Like the show on Facebook or follow it on Twitter at Batgirl, the Oracle. Follow the Batman Universe on Facebook and Twitter as well. And be sure to support TBU by subscribing to Patreon. Once again, thanks to Mile High Comics for sponsoring Batgirl The Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast. And until next time...